Our Father in heaven, dear Lord, we praise you that we are blessed this morning to have Simon and Gillian with us. We want to pray that you guide them through today, but that you bless the ministry that they have in South Africa, where they make a difference for all cultures, in a world and in a country where it's desperately needed. Yes, it's a culture where you have been part of history for, for years. But dear Lord, to have a revival, we pray for that. Mm -hmm. And we pray for, for our congregation as well this morning. Help us to hear and help us to listen and help us to know that you are speaking to us, each and every one, and that you're calling us. Because as you say in your word, we don't live of bread alone, but from every word from your mouth. And we praise you therefore. Gemeente, ek groet jy in die naam van God die Vader, van Jesus Christus die Seen, en die Heilige Gees. Amen. The reading for today is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 to 11. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Well, thank you, Elmarie, very much indeed for that clear reading. Uh, if you have a Bible, I think it would be helpful for you to have it open, uh, but I think the text will also stay on the screen behind me, and that will be great. Um, won't you just bow with me as we ask for God's help to understand his word this morning? Gracious Heavenly Father, you have promised to be with your church, watching over us, protecting us, and providing all that we need for life and godliness. We thank you that you know our past and understand it completely, that you know our needs and are able to meet them adequately, and that you know our destiny and are able to prepare us for it perfectly. So will you come to us now and speak to us by your Spirit, through your Word, that each of us may be conscious that we are listening to the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, calling us now to follow him into the future. For it is in his name we ask it. Amen. Well, I've called the title of this talk Hard News, and that's because we are constantly being bombarded with news. Uh, it might be on the television, it might be on our computer screens, or it might be in good old-fashioned newsprint, 
Uh, we just can't escape it. But in recent years, the, the content, the presentation of the news has undergone a rather subtle change. I wonder if you've noticed it. Uh, 30 years ago, the news was dominated by um, business and politics and international events. And anything outside of those categories was considered to be lifestyle, and it was put in, in a magazine or into a special supplement. But today, uh, media professionals do things just a little differently. They still make a distinction between hard news and soft news, but they present these two different kinds of news side by side in order to keep us interested. Uh, what are we talking about? Well, soft news includes um, heartwarming stories, such as where um, Kate and William might be spending their summer holidays, um, or how the Springboks can recover their position in world rugby, uh, or how you can uh, lose 10 kilograms in a week without even going on a diet. Um, when we read these stories, they, they give us a nice warm glow, but they don't actually change our lives. They don't affect our lives in any meaningful way. That is soft news. But hard news is different. Hard news brings us significant events which affect everybody. Uh, that could be the economic consequences of Britain leaving the European Union, um, or it could be the humanitarian crisis that's coming out of the Middle East and sweeping through Europe and into this country. Uh, or as far as we're concerned, it could be the collapsing rand. Whatever it is, hard news is something you simply cannot ignore. If you do ignore it, it'll catch up with you. It will overtake you. And uh, you see, today, the media puts hard news and soft news side by side in the newspaper, and it leaves it up to us to spot the difference. And unfortunately, of course, we're not always as good at doing that as perhaps we ought to be. And we, we confuse the two, soft news and hard news, far more often than we might care to admit. Now, when the Apostle Paul was writing the words that we're looking at together this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, there was no such thing as soft news. The only kind of news around in the first century was hard news. And the word that was used to describe hard news was the word gospel. You see, in the first century, gospel was not actually a religious word. It was a media word. And uh, in the days before televisions and computers, the way that this news was distributed was by the king's messenger riding into your village and literally shouting it out. So when the Apostle Paul talks about the Christian gospel in verses 1 and 2 of our passage, what he's saying is that Christianity is hard news. It's something that has actually happened in history and it changes everything. If you ignore it, Sooner or later, it will overtake you. 
Now, my task this morning, I think, is to try and show you why Paul said that and then invite you to make up your own mind as to whether you think Christianity is hard news or not. Now, before we come to the text, I think it's important for all of us to realize that the Christians in Corinth, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, the Christians in Corinth were always asking questions. And one of the questions that they were asking in those days is, what happens when we die? Uh, Like many people today, they had some pretty vague and woolly ideas about the immortality of the soul. As far as they were concerned, Christianity was essentially a way of life and not much more. The idea of a physical resurrection of the soul and the body in a renewed universe, well, it just didn't enter their thinking. So at uh, the funeral of a loved one, all their hopes of seeing the loved one again disappeared with the smoke up the crematorium chimney. Now, there are a lot of people like that today, aren't there? Uh, You'll know people uh, who think that Christianity is really only a particular way of life, nothing more than that. And so Paul takes the whole of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to say that a Christian is somebody who can be utterly confident of the resurrection of the whole person, soul and body. And the reason for that confidence is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the resurrection of Jesus that makes Christianity hard news. So based on what uh, Paul says here, I want to give you three propositions, three simple statements about the resurrection, and then invite you to draw your own conclusion. Let me tell you what these three statements are, and then we'll look at each one briefly in turn. Number one, the resurrection is history. The resurrection is history. Number two, the resurrection is a personal confrontation. It is a personal confrontation. And then number three, the resurrection is a promise. It's a promise. So firstly then, the resurrection is history. Now friends, if you want to put your hands on on a very simple, clear, summary of the whole Christian message, you won't find anything better in the whole of the New Testament than verses 3 to 5 in our passage this morning. Because in these verses, Paul gives us four short statements, each beginning with the word that. And what I want you to notice is that each statement is describing a historical event So have a look with me, if you will, at verse 3. Because in verse 3, Paul says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, now here's the first statement, that Christ died. That's the first of these four historical events. Why did he die? Paul tells us Christ died for our sins. 
And so straight away we can see, can't we, that first and foremost, Christianity is not actually about a way of life. It is that, but only secondarily. Primarily, Christianity is about how God rescues people from our most fundamental problem. And our most fundamental problem, of course, uh, is not the economy, uh, it's not the declining rand, it's not your health, it's not your marriage. Our most fundamental problem, my dear friends, is God. I wonder if that surprises you. Our most fundamental problem is that a day is coming when each one of us will have to stand before the God who is holy and who must deal with sin justly in order to be true to himself. And by the way, don't let that little word sin confuse you. Uh, to say that somebody is a sinner uh, is not saying that they're especially unpleasant or immoral. They might be terribly good company. We might enjoy having them round for dinner. But in the Bible, a sinner is someone who has pushed God right out to the margins of their lives and put themselves in the centre instead. That's what sin is, and the bad news is that all of us have done it. There isn't anybody in this building this morning that hasn't done what I've just described, that hasn't pushed God into second place in their lives. And the punishment, of course, that God has decreed for sin is death, meaning, of course, not just physical death, but rather separation from God, separation from our loved ones, separation from everything good, and not just for a short while, but forever. Now, that is the problem that Christ was dealing with when he died. He died for our sins. Now, of course, if that's true, well, how can we be sure that he really did die? And the answer is in the second historical event in the Christian message, described by Paul in verse 4. Can you see it there? The second phrase beginning with the word that. That he was buried. Now, that's really important because throughout history, some people have tried to suggest that when Jesus died on the cross, he only appeared to die. He didn't actually die. He swooned or something like that. But Paul says that can't possibly be right because he was buried. It's what happens to dead people. We bury them. The burial of Jesus is evidence for the reality of his death. But how, of course, do we know that his death was effective? How can we be sure that his death really did deal with the problem of our sin. And that also is in verse 4, where Paul says that he was raised. That's the third historical event. It's in the calendar. It happened on the third day. For the first time in human history, somebody rose from the grave, and they're still alive more than 2,000 years later. So you see, the resurrection matters because it shows us that the full payment for sin has been made. 
Jesus died for our sins, and the resurrection is proof that we have nothing more to pay. If you like, the resurrection is God's receipt. But how then do we know that the resurrection actually happened? And that brings us to the fourth statement in verse 5, that he appeared. Now we need to think very carefully about this, you see. Uh, Christians are not gullible, feeble-minded people who believe anything that you tell them. We believe these things because there is solid evidence. And the evidence is given to us in verses 5 to 8, where you'll notice that, that Paul mentions no less than six different groups of people who saw the risen Lord Jesus, including more than 500 people at one time. Now, what on earth are you going to do with that? What are you going to make of that? Let me give you a slightly silly illustration to make a serious point. Suppose that somebody came up to you over coffee after the service, and they said, you know, early this morning, um, I came downstairs and I looked out, and there in the garden was an orange and green striped zebra. Now, you would have immediately at least two problems to deal with, wouldn't you? The first is that you've never seen an orange and green striped zebra. If you have, do please come and tell me about it afterwards. So they're asking you, aren't they, to believe something completely outside your own experience. But the second problem you've got to deal with is it's only one person's testimony. And when you put those two problems together, you would be extremely foolish and unwise to believe it, wouldn't you? But when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, it's not quite the same. Yes, we are dealing with something that is outside our experience, but the quality of the testimony is totally different. For a start, you've got to reckon with the testimony of multiple witnesses. Uh, because in addition to, these, uh, to some personal appearances, Jesus appeared to the twelve, that's in verse 5, and then he appeared to more than 500 people at the same time, verse 6. And Paul says, that, uh, says in verse 6, doesn't he, that most of those 500 people are still alive. Now, why does he say that? Well, you see, he's writing to people and saying, look, if you don't believe me, I can give you some names and addresses. Go and talk to them. They saw it. And then not only do we have the testimony of multiple witnesses, but some of the people who saw the risen Lord Jesus were actually hostile. They did not want this to be true. So there's James, the half-brother of Jesus, in verse 7, and then there's the Apostle Paul himself in verse 8, and I'm going to say something else about them in just a moment. But you see, while Jesus was alive, these men were definitely not disciples. They were antagonistic to everything that Jesus stood for. And the fact that they saw the risen Lord Jesus and that they believed in spite of their antagonism is evidence that the resurrection actually happened. But then there are some people who 
think that they've got a way around this, that they can avoid the truth of what I've just said. They say, well, I'm a postmodern man. I hear what you say, and uh, if it's true for you, then that's absolutely marvelous. If it helps you cope with the, the stresses and strains of life, well, well, that's okay. You know, you can be free to believe whatever you like. And of course, on the surface, that sounds wonderfully balanced, wonderfully fair-minded. The problem is, my dear friends, we do not live our lives like that. Um, you know, we don't say to the starving beggar by the traffic lights in Cape Town, it doesn't matter if you haven't eaten for two days, just believe that you have. Uh, or we don't say to, to the wife who's trapped in a loveless marriage, it doesn't actually matter if your husband hasn't given you a hug for six months, just believe that he has. And when we collect our car from the repair shop, the mechanic doesn't say to us, um, I'm terribly sorry, but there's a problem with your water pump, but don't worry, just believe it's okay and you'll be fine. Because by the time you get halfway around the M25, you'll discover that it isn't. Now, in every area of life that really matters, believing against the evidence is always disastrous. And it's the same with Christianity. Christianity is not a set of ideas that we can believe or not according to whether it suits our lifestyle, whether it's convenient. Christianity rests on historical events. If these things happened, Christianity is hard news, and only a fool would ignore it. The resurrection is history. But then secondly, the resurrection is a personal confrontation. You see, in addition to the encounters with the larger groups, the 12 and the 500 that we've just looked at, Paul mentions that the resurrected Jesus appeared to three individuals. And in each case, the experience turned the lives of these men literally upside down. The resurrection was a personal confrontation for them. The first is the Apostle Peter in verse 5. As you know, for three years, the Apostle Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends. But you'll also remember that when Jesus was arrested and put on trial, Peter denied that he even knew him. And friends, don't make a mistake, that wasn't a slip of the tongue. It was a conscious choice. He said it three times. Peter, quite deliberately, in the heat of the moment, chose not to identify himself with the man who said that he'd come from heaven to deal with our most fundamental problem. And yet, and yet, within a few weeks, there's Peter, a totally changed man. Uh, if you have time this afternoon and read Acts chapter 2, there's Peter standing before a crowd of thousands urging them to believe in the Jesus that he himself had denied only seven weeks before. Peter the coward has been transformed into Peter the fearless preacher. How did that happen? Well, the answer is that Peter met the resurrected Jesus. And you can read all about that in the Gospel of John chapter 21. 
And the, and the point, you see, is that Christianity is not simply truth to be understood intellectually. That's not the message of Easter Sunday. The message of Easter, of Easter Sunday is that Christianity is about a living person. And becoming a Christian is all about dealing with a living Lord. So it's a personal confrontation. And then in verse 7, notice there is James. Did you see that in your Bibles? James, of course, was the half-brother of our Lord. And elsewhere, the New Testament tells us that during Jesus' earthly ministry, his brothers didn't believe in him. That's John chapter 7. And that, of course, included James. James was not a believer during Jesus' three years on earth. But in our text, Paul says that the resurrected Jesus appeared to James. And just a few weeks later, in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we find James praying with the other believers in Jerusalem. He also wrote one of the letters in the New Testament, and in the very first sentence of that letter, he describes himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So James was transformed from a skeptic into a servant. Now, why, why had James been so blind, do you think? Let's just ponder this for a moment. Perhaps James was so familiar with Jesus that he couldn't actually see anything unique about him. Uh, for many years, he'd worked alongside him in the carpenter's shop in Nazareth, so just think about that for a moment. James had watched Jesus making furniture. He had seen Jesus' blood and sweat. And perhaps it was that James was so familiar with Jesus that he was immune to him. Do you think that might be possible? Maybe he was even just a little bit jealous of his brother's high profile. Whatever it was, the resurrection brought James out of darkness and unbelief into the light. We don't know how it happened. Uh, maybe Jesus came to James and put his hand on James's shoulder and said, what do you think about me now? And uh, James looked and he saw the familiar cuts and scratches and he also saw the hole in Jesus' hand where the nail had been. It may have been something perhaps rather like that. What's the point? Well, you might be in James's position this morning. You might be so familiar with Jesus that you've never really seen him for who he actually is. And maybe that's because the resurrection has never been anything more than just a slightly interesting idea for you. And if that is where you are, well, maybe this morning you need to ask Jesus to do for you what he did for James. Maybe you, you need to ask him to take your, your dead, unbelieving familiarity and open your eyes so that you see that Jesus is the living Lord. 
And then thirdly, in verse 8, if you notice, Jesus appeared to the apostle Paul. And it says that he appeared to him as one abnormally born. It's a very strange phrase, that's the only place where it appears in the Bible. And it's a very violent phrase. It's describing the violence of the transformation in Paul's life. You see, if, if James's problem was familiarity without faith, the problem for the Apostle Paul was anger. He'd been persecuting the church in a raging fury. If you have a Bible, you might like to turn to Acts chapter 26. If you haven't, don't worry, I'll read it for you. But in Acts 26, the Apostle Paul is telling somebody about his life before he met Jesus, and he says this, quote, On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them, end quote. You see, at that time, Paul was a sworn enemy of Jesus. And just when Paul's anger was at its absolute peak and he was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, the resurrected Jesus appeared to him and knocked him flat. And there's something actually rather ironic about it, if you think about it, because Jesus transformed Paul, the church persecutor, into Paul, the church planter. You can't actually have a more violent transformation than that. I don't know, maybe someone here this morning is where Paul was, perhaps Perhaps you are furious inside with Jesus. You don't like him. You don't like his people. And if that's true, I want to say to you that you are in a very serious position. And that could run in one of two directions. Uh, on the one hand, the Lord Jesus may decide not to interrupt your fury. He may just let you carry on in your animosity against him and against his people, he may just let you perish everlastingly. But what can we learn from Paul's experience? Well, there is another possibility. Because whilst you might be full of rage against Jesus and against everything that he stands for, if Jesus wants to get you, he will. Uh, there's absolutely nothing you're going to be able to do about it. Because whatever you may think, you are no match for a risen Redeemer if he has determined to make you his servant. So can you see, friends, that if the testimony of this passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11, if the testimony of this text is true then you are not simply wrestling with a set of ideas here. You're wrestling, rather, with a risen Lord who transforms whoever he wants, whenever he wants. 
And that's why the resurrection is a personal confrontation. But lastly and very briefly, the resurrection is also a promise. We began by saying that Christianity is hard news, and Paul, of course, learned that the hard way. Some years he he denied it, he hated it, he wanted to destroy it, but in the end he couldn't actually escape it. He met the risen Christ, and in a moment his entire belief system was transformed. He was overtaken by the hard news of Christianity. And, And he spent the rest of his life, didn't he, taking that news to the rest of the known world. And at the heart of his message were the four historical statements that we looked at a bit earlier in verses 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised, that he appeared. And I want to close this morning by drawing your attention to a small but very significant detail in the text. I want you to notice that these events didn't simply happen by chance. Paul says they happened according to the Scriptures. He says it twice, once in verse 3 and then again in verse 4. And Paul repeats himself, you see, because he doesn't want us to be in any doubt at all that God had promised that all of this was precisely what would happen. And if you've got time later today, I do recommend that you read Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and following. And that explains exactly how the the Scriptures pointed to this. But what I want to say to you this morning is that just as God kept His promise to raise the Lord Jesus from the grave, so Jesus makes the same promise to us. And he will keep it. Now, why do I say that? Well, you don't need to turn to it, but there is a marvelous place in the Gospel of John where Jesus is talking to a friend whose brother has just died. And he says this to her. He says this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And immediately in that story, Jesus proved his power and authority to deliver on the promise by raising her dead brother from the grave. In other words, the promise that this woman had received from Jesus became hard news in her own experience. And I want to close by saying to you that the risen Lord Jesus is holding out the same promise to you this morning. The promise of eternal life with Jesus starting right now. And the question simply is, what are you going to do with that? Why don't you let him give you a fresh start with the burden of all your sin removed? A new purpose in life with the living Lord Jesus as your Lord and friend. A new future in which death is not actually the end. And new friends 
to love you, to encourage you, and to pray for you. What are you going to do with that? Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, you have reminded us that the resurrection of Jesus is hard news. We can't ignore it. And it means that as we read about it in Scripture, we are not simply dealing with Christian teaching. No, we're dealing with a living Lord. Grant us grace to see Jesus for who he is, to love him as our Saviour, and to serve him as our Lord. We ask it for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. Amen.